This is Lizzie Ozial, Vision Movement, and you're listening to The Next Stage Podcast. I'm sitting here with Rabbi Huda Cohen in Jerusalem. There's a war going on around us, and I felt it was important for us to discuss a couple things. Sounds like fun. I wanted to ask you, you know, at Vision, specifically you, uh, we spent a lot of time discussing the power of understanding narratives and the ability to actually transcend those narratives. Um, and a lot of the times those conversations center on, you know, understanding the Palestinian narrative in contrast to the Jewish slash Israeli narrative. And so I can understand um, the value in understanding the Palestinian narrative intellectually. But I wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not you think this is an appropriate time for us to try and understand the other, or if this is a time where our focus just needs to be on, you know, destroying the enemy and uh, restoring Israel's honor. That's a great question in wartime. Whether or not it's productive to try and understand the narrative of the other, I'm actually of the opinion that even if you're interested in destroying the other side, it's helpful to know their narrative, to really understand them as they understand themselves. Um, this is actually, a, uh, at this moment in time, like a tougher subject to dive into because honestly, like, I, I don't know, I can't really speak for like all Jews out there. I know me in specific, I have had a like real, real issue trying to get into some sort of like rational, like uh, headspace in terms of like how I want to communicate about what we're going through right now because at this moment it's hard to understand anyone else's narrative but our own and it kind of feels really uncomfortable to even like give credence or credit okay, to I, I feel you but i think what look this is something i i can't stress enough for me understanding the narrative of the other is very much coming from a place of strength and not weakness it makes me stronger it makes me more enlightened it provides me with a higher level perception of what's actually going on here, and it gives me more insights onto how to fix things. Whether I want to fix things through reconciling with the Palestinians and creating a shared future here together in which we both see our aspirations met and our grievances resolved, or if the only way we can move forward is through defeating them decisively and moving forward that way, I think it's like this. We're all living in our subjective narratives as individuals, as groups, as national identities, and all of our narratives are made up of a lot of true facts. And sometimes there's falsehoods there as well. Sometimes there are things that are not true that get mixed up in there. But capital T divine truth, Hashem's truth, objective truth is really a combination of all our truths. And I experience life to a certain extent, as a journey towards coming close to objective truth. As a human being, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I think I'm always, to a certain extent, going to be living in a reality of subjective truth. I think we all are. I don't think humans are wired to fully grasp divine truth. But I think life can be a really exciting and enjoyable adventure of coming close to divine truth, closer and closer and closer, through being inclusive of other people's subjective truths. And I think that the more, at least in my experience, the more that I've been inclusive, really made an effort to challenge myself and understand the Palestinian story from their perspective, their identity from their perspective, and, and to be able to sift out the things that are true and not true. One thing I have to acknowledge right now is I see a lot going on on Palestinian social media accounts 
a certain like leftist podcast that I'm in the habit of listening to, where what happened on Simchat Torah is completely denied. Like it didn't happen. Like it's a lie. Like it's Zionist propaganda. You don't need to do that. Like there, there's no reason to do that because when I see someone, Palestinians or people supporting Palestinians, like outright denying something that is not only so well um, documented. First of all true and second of all painful for us then it, it completely makes me want to shut down i could definitely understand why you shut down and why you're totally closed off to the narrative ju- at the moment by the way okay. meaning this is like a temper until i feel like we've actually like gotten our justice in this situation i'm close to their narrative i'm not close to it forever and i think that like understanding their narrative has helped me to understand who we are much better mm-hmm. and in that i do find it useful okay. um but I, I do acknowledge in this moment it's it's very hard and honestly i think palestinians have been engaged in their own version of what we could call like israeli hasbara and how they perceive how we talk about ourselves mm-hmm. they've been engaging in the exact same type of thing just on their own side of the street so right i i just think honestly i feel it's in no one's interest to deny things that are true. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately we're only going to be able to properly move forward with truth, to be truth seekers, whether that truth is easy or difficult for us to confront or accept. Um, I think we have to challenge ourselves, really challenge ourselves, all of us, Palestinians, Israelis, our fans abroad, everyone. We're, just, we're going to have to ask ourselves really uncomfortable questions sometimes because that's how we grow. And, uh, you know, you've grown a lot, I've grown a lot. And I know know a lot of Palestinian activists who have also grown a lot over the years, but it never comes through denying truth or trying to spread lies. But what's most important to me in, in terms of this conversation about narratives is really trying to help the listeners understand how it works structurally. Like, what do I mean when I say narratives? Because whether, it's not just about Israelis and Palestinians. I think this is also true for like, couples going through a divorce, or any individuals in any society who have a disagreement or conflict, I think just like learning to understand that every single conflict, whether big or small, has at least two subjective truths, two real stories. And the more we can try and transcend the friction between those two stories and actually get to a bigger story that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival stories, the better our planet will be for all of us. And and I think that's certainly true for us in the Palestinians. Very true. But maybe it would be helpful if I defined what I mean when I talk about narratives, because it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and maybe other people who use it mean something a little bit different from how I use it. Yeah. Uh, When I say narrative, what I really mean is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen, contextualized within an ideological worldview, and organized to tell a story. Uh, So when it comes to our conflict with the Palestinians, we're talking about over 100 years of fighting. I think there are millions of facts. And what tends to happen is each side selects the facts that can be organized to tell the story we want to tell. And we also tend to ignore the facts or play down the importance of the facts that complicate the stories we want to tell or strengthen the story that the other side wants to tell. So I think that for the sake of of this explanation, I would argue that for the most part, 
Jews and Palestinians are telling the truth about our own experiences and the facts we're each employing and organizing and contextualizing are true facts and we're both using those facts to tell the stories we want to tell but we're both so trapped in this like battle of delegitimizing the narrative of the other that what we ultimately end up doing is instead of even fighting one another we're fighting our fantasy of the other because we're each in our own subjective narratives superimposing identities and ideologies and motivations on the other that have very little to do with how the other is actually experiencing himself. So it's like we're each living in our own movie, like we're living in two completely different movies. And in each of our movies, the other exists as like the antagonist, but as like a fantasy antagonist. And even when we're, we're fighting to defeat the other or to destroy the other, we're selecting very counterproductive methods of struggle. Um, the clear example right now is Hamas. Hamas fights Israel as if we're a European colonizer. They believe that about us. Many Palestinians today and most of their supporters abroad genuinely believe. It's not just like propaganda that they don't think is true. They genuinely believe that Israel is a foreign colonial entity that doesn't belong here. And therefore, they fight us using anti-colonial methods of struggle, trying to make the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation. And the assumption is that once they do that, once they make the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation, we'll just leave. It just won't be worth it for us to stay here anymore. That's how we defeated the British when they're in our country. The Lehi specifically, the Lachanecherut Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, made it so expensive for the British to be here that they left. That's how the Algerians beat the French. That's how the Taliban beat the Americans in Afghanistan, ultimately. So the problem is, because Hamas insists on relating to Israel this way, and not relating to Israel as we really exist, but really as we exist as a fantasy antagonist in their story, they fight us using tactics that ultimately blow up in their faces. I don't know that we can put all Palestinian resistance or just Palestinian terrorism, depending on what side of this ideological aisle you're coming from, in the same category and like ascribe the same exact type of motivation to it. I'd say like some of the resistance is coming from more of an anti-colonial leaning and then some of it is coming from like Islam and I do think that those two motivations are a little bit different. They still relate to us as people that they think that they can you know drive out using these tools that we use to kind of fight the British or that other indigenous people use to fight their colonizers but I would say that the motivation behind it is a little bit different across groups like PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hamas and PFLP all had different like um, ideological uh, roots to like the way in which they carry out their resistance. So I do think it's important to not like lump all of that together. But I would say that within the Palestinian collective consciousness, that is how they relate to this idea of like resistance, this idea of when we see terror attacks against us, that, that that's how they're seeing it. That's how they're experiencing this violence against us as the violence against an occupier. I think the general experience Palestinian society seems to be sharing is a sense of being occupied by Israel, being uh, controlled by Israel, being oppressed by Israel. And I think the method of struggle they've chosen, whether we're talking about the PFLP or Hamas or anybody else, 
I think the method of struggle they've chosen is an anti-colonial one, and I think it's largely based on how they perceive us. And even if I think they're telling the truth about themselves and their own experiences, I still think the fact that they're wrong about who we are, that they so deeply misunderstand who we are, who the Jewish people are, and what the Jewish people are doing in this land, that causes them to make really fatal errors. Because when they attack us using these anti-colonial tactics, we respond like a people that 100% self-identifies as indigenous and has superior firepower. Yeah. And you know, what I think Hamas did this time around was they attacked us in such a way uh, and at such a scale that they moved themselves from one category to another in the minds of most Israelis. Before Simchat Torah, before the attack, most Israelis tended to relate to Hamas as a manageable nuisance. And since Simchat Torah, and what we've seen so far in this war and the way the Israeli public is relating to this war, Hamas is actually an existential threat. Yeah, I mean, I think that they, honestly, like, this is part of why, you know, just in general, like, whether you're speaking on behalf of Palestinians and their collective goals or, or Jews and our collective goals, this is why it is important to understand the enemy you're fighting, because the blow that Hamas struck against Israel, like, opened such deep wounds in the Jewish collective psyche that, honestly, I do not think that they really anticipated that we would actually respond with the type of force and just, you know, like, lack of restraint that we have been responding with uh, because they misassessed what the actual threat was. You know, they took 200 hostages and expected a prisoner deal, like, probably immediately. Um, and, you know, partially that's our responsibility for setting a precedent that we would even give them this idea that we're willing to negotiate and give in to their demands. But now, you know, this is like a different Israel that they're dealing with. They haven't dealt with this face of Israel because we have not, we have not had these wounds open in such a long time. And we've never had this type of power when we have experienced this type of hurt mm -hmm. in our people. So, so yeah, that's definitely, it's very accurate to that, say. That, that's a good point. I think the, this point you're raising uh, about this combination of vulnerability and power that we're currently experiencing, because I think in general, you know, when, one of the ways that anti-Semitism functions is the Jews relate to ourselves as more vulnerable than we actually are, and we're perceived by outsiders as more powerful than we actually are. So while we think we're punching up, others see us as punching down. I don't even know if our vulnerability is connected to Hamas. I think we actually feel like we could crush them very easily. It's not that that has always been the perception of like Hamas as an enemy is that like we have the power to crush them if we want to, we just chose not to up until this moment. Um, and then this situation took a turn for the worse and we decided, you know, enough, we're not putting up with this for one moment longer. I think the vulnerability comes from the fact that there are tons of Jews outside of Israel. There's a lot of factors at play for the Jewish people. So it makes that very complicated for us. Um, well, well, two things that we've seen materialize here within the Israeli public is A, there is definitely a thirst beyond just the vision movement. We're seeing this throughout Israeli society. There is a thirst, a demand to return to Gaza to undo the 2005 Gaza disengagement and to be able to make Gaza part of our country again and for Jews to be able to live there again. That's certainly uh, expressing itself in many different ways throughout Israeli society. 
And another interesting development we see in Israeli society right now is a more overt desire for independence from the United States. I think a lot of Israelis perceive the United States as holding us back from doing what we believe we should be doing right now. And I think um, that has led to like a healthy desire for freedom. I also think we, you know, are all of a sudden remembering how we got into this situation in the first place, which is the fact that, you know, we were conned and manipulated by the United States to disengage in the first place. That didn't pass by like a giant majority vote in Israel, like barely made it through at the behest of the United States. And so we're we're very conscious of that, I think, in this moment of like, how on earth did we think that that was a good idea? Who sold us this fantasy that that would keep us safe? And we remember exactly who it was that sold us this fantasy. And, you know, the fact that there are all these Western nations now. Um, and, and the truth is, we have we are influenced by the entire West, not just the United States. The United States is the leading figurehead of that. But, you know, all these European countries, they interfere in our uh, national affairs as well. Yes, but... It's the United States that our defense minister says we need in order to replenish our weapon stockpile, meaning it's the United States that has the economic and military and even diplomatic leash on us. Sure, but I also think not to ignore the foreign pressure that's been exerted from a lot of different Western nations for us to give up parts of our homeland and be sold some sort of fantasy of like peace and security um, for a situation that like is never going to actually materialize, meaning that that is a fantasy that they would like to see for their own interests, that the West would like to see for their own interests, but is actually deeply harmful to us on so many levels. We can talk about ideological reasons why we shouldn't give up our land, but the fact of the matter is, is that it is a security nightmare for us to do that. And if we needed any further proof, I mean, if the rockets and the tons of little skirmishes with Gaza that we've had like wasn't enough to prove it to you this is like a very clear uh awakening for a lot of israeli society that kind of is proving to us like trading land for peace is not going to actually keep us safe it's not going to do much well when it comes to gaza we weren't even trading it for peace first of all i think the, the very concept of trading land for peace already makes me feel like uh, i don't know what the word is today when i was growing up like a herb like if you wanted peace with me and I said, sure, but I need your phone. Like, you'd be trading your phone for my piece. That makes my piece more valuable than yours, right? If, if my piece is valuable, then either you would trade your piece for it, or you would give me some material object or benefit, land, promise, etc., something in exchange for my piece. The fact that it's always Israel that's expected to give something in exchange for peace makes Israel's peace not valuable. Yeah. And again, just leads us into nightmarish situations like we're in now, where we've like essentially disengaged from a vital part of our homeland and we've allowed things to run amok there and forces have emerged from that place where we've removed our presence that are actively coming to harm us. And I think just the idea of that, the idea of the United States like after this war telling us, okay, well, now we're actually pushing for this two-state solution and going full speed ahead with it is like a nightmare for Israelis. Like, we don't want to hear a word of that right now. And so we're kind of realizing that we've made a deal with the devil in terms of like our military relationship with the United States. Um, also, the fact that, that their, you know, negative global image is now dragging us into potentially a larger scale war than just, you know, trying to take back Gaza. 
that's also a result of you know our relationship with the United States and and I think it's healthy for us to self-reflect at this moment and say like wait a minute like how much is this really serving us like how many enemies are we gonna have to fight now as a result of like being friends with the United States and like pissing off the guys that they they don't like the United States so now we're in the middle of it and the battle is happening on our home front that's not like a tenable situation for us to be in right that, that's a very good point we definitely don't want what's happening here to be in any way connected to what's happening between like Russia and Ukraine or the Chinese and Taiwan connecting all of that is a surefire way to lead this into World War III and and for Israel to find itself on a side I'm not really sure we should be on but it, it's very clear, you know, in terms of what you were saying before, that uh, Ariel Sharon, when he was prime minister and he was pushing forward this policy of expelling thousands of Jews from their homes and destroying dozens of Jewish communities wow. and shrinking the borders of our country, he was saying, we're not making peace with the Arabs. We're making peace with the Americans. We have to do this. That was basically the message of Sharon to many people. And we can see that uh, today, even though the United States has been extremely supportive of whatever carnage we want to unleash on Gaza, they want to make sure that this is going to pivot towards the direction of partitioning our land into two separate states. And I'm not even really sure how supportive they actually are. I just think they know that they would look foolish if they tried to challenge us on that, because I don't think any single person in the Israeli government right now has any inclination to uh, try to take it easy with dealing with this situation. I don't think that's a viable political direction for anyone in office to actually go in. And I think they all know that. And I think the United States knows that, that that's the situation that they're in. And so at this point, you know, you don't really have a choice, which actually kind of makes it makes me feel a little bit better about where we're standing in terms of how strongly this really hit us and how, you know, how much we really desire to take our fate into our own hands here to the point where the United States really has not much they can say at this point that's going to actually stop us, and so they're not even bothering. Well, I think one thing the Americans have known about us for a long time, with the exception of Barack Obama, by the way, is that it's easier to control us when they're friendly. Uh, this actually reminds me of Parshat Vayishlach, the beginning of Parshat Vayishlach, when Yaakov and Esav confront one another. There's a whole story around questioning whether or not Esav kissed Yaakov or tried to bite Yaakov. And um, the way the Tzvat Emet explains it is, no, Esav, he kissed Yaakov, but when it comes to Esav, the kiss is the bite, meaning that's what we have to resist. And the Americans have known for a long time that it's much easier to control Israel when they're friendly, when they're nice to us, when they say good things about us. In fact, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, uh, under George W. Bush, and, and Condoleezza Rice was very instrumental in forcing us from Gaza in 2005. She, in her book, she criticized Barack Obama for screwing up Washington's efforts to shrink Israel. She said, we were able to get Israel to give up Gaza because we, the Bush administration, was friendly to Israel. But Obama was so overtly hostile to Israel that he ended up forcing us to give up nothing. He ended up getting us to give up nothing. And, uh, and she criticized him for that. So aside from Obama, and, and I'm sure he learned his lesson, it seems that the United States, especially Republican administrations, have known you can control the Jews much easier with uh, honey than with vinegar. Mm -hmm. That's very true. So I just want to circle back to uh, what we were speaking about before, which was this perception that... Um, 
that Israel is this like occupying entity and uh, that we're, you know, settler colonialist and that's how Palestinian experience us. Um, but I, you know, I would be remiss if we didn't mention that this is also how a lot of the left views Israel. That's the global the, left. The global left perceives Israel um, to be this like settler colony and they're very, very adamantly anti-Israel. Um, and so how should we understand this phenomenon? I know I have my opinions, but I'm curious, I'm curious to know, do you think this is anti-Semitism? Do you think it's something else? Like, what is it? Okay, I, I think one thing we have to understand about the Marxist left is that they're looking at the world through a lens of historical materialism, okay? The big machloket, uh, the big disagreement between Marx and Hegel was whether or not it's ideas or material conditions that move history. And because the left is so dogmatically materialist, they have a blind spot when it comes to the Jewish people. I think they, the, the left genuinely doesn't know where to place us, doesn't know how to relate to us. And I think it's very easy and obvious once they've already adopted this position. And I think it's very easy for them, especially today, and, and especially based on how many Israeli leaders have behaved and a lot of choices that we've made politically and diplomatically to just categorize us as a European settler colony functioning in partnership with another settler colony turned global empire, the United States. But the problem is that the people of Israel are complicated, are actually too complicated and way too unique to be categorized so neatly. We are the only example of an ancient people that was destroyed, yet survived for 2,000 years in gas form, only to come back to life as a solid in the land we had been displaced from and take possession of that land and revive our language and, and suddenly like shake up the whole global order in a way that I don't think the left fully appreciates. So I think that a, a lot of the anti-Israel hostility that exists on the left and the way they choose to understand and perceive us is really a symptom of their dogmatic commitment to a materialist worldview. I would make the argument that it actually is anti-Semitism. It's just anti-Semitism on a bigger scale. So if we're, if our understanding of anti-Semitism is that, you know, in, in most cases of oppression, there's a power structure and they're sitting on top of another people. And for Jews, our oppression works a little bit differently, that we're always positioned as this kind of fall guy. We're placed in the middle of the power structure and the people who are being oppressed and then it's easy to point to us and when things go wrong and you know the, the oppressed of society wants to rebel against the people who are oppressing them they look to the Jews and I would argue that that is happening with Israel on a global stage where we have become an easy target to project all of this like colonial guilt and uh, outrage against the kind of like evils that the West has done and just it's an easy we're an easy fall guy and there seems to be this principled resistance amongst people on the left to actually openly and honestly engage with the Jewish narrative, engage with the Jewish story. They let everybody else, every other group gets to define their own oppression. But us, we get told what's anti-Semitic and what's not anti-Semitic and how, how we should understand our own identity, what our identity actually is. We aren't, we aren't given any space 
or even like proper academic consideration for our roots, right? Like there's no real honest discourse about where the people of Israel come from and are we really descended from this ancient civilization that we claim to be or not. That's not even, that doesn't even enter into the consciousness, into the space of all of these like anti-colonial and Marxist discussions. And I would argue that there is an element of anti-Semitism there where we're, we just seem to be like that perpetual other who doesn't really seem to fit into any of these like discourse and structures. And it also seems that we're disproportionately powerful and, you know, Okay, point to that guy. That guy is the, the one that all these powerful countries supports. They, it must be an extension of their empires. And so it's, an, it's easy pickings. That's how I feel about it. All right. So you're, you're saying that it's very easy for the left to fall into the trap of systemic anti-Semitism. Yeah. Right. And seeing Israel as the powerful oppressor, whereas in reality, Israel being positioned that way is part of our oppression. Yes. Yeah, so I think in order for us to be able to break free from that, we have to be able to recognize that. We have to be able to understand how this middle agent oppressor uh, type of anti-Semitism works. And Israel needs to make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors. I think that's the only way out of that. Uh, and it's hard. Look, I, I Well, it's hard to be on the side of the oppressed when the oppressed seems to be aligning against you and want to participate in your oppression. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I mean there's got to be there's got to be bridges built. Um and at the end of the day, like this is this is why I guess I take the stance that I do, which is like, you know, Jews come home, be in your homeland because here we really are in charge of our destiny and our relationships with other people. It's a little bit different in the diaspora where we're very much uh, vulnerable to, you know, basically the threats of other people. We, we don't really have that much control over like what actually happens to us if tides turn against us. So Sure. Here we're responsible for our own destiny and our own security. It's huge. I know, you know, at risk of just sounding like a generic Zionist, that's not a small thing. And uh, especially right now. Yeah, I, I think that as you said, it's not even part of the discourse on the left, this question as to whether or not the Israelis are just a bunch of, you know, Lithuanians, Russians, Poles, Iraqis, Egyptians, Algerians who happen to share a religion called Judaism, or are we the ancient Israelites that were destroyed by the Romans but have come back to life in the modern age? Well, they don't actually bother to seek out, meaning they fall into this trap of like tokenizing Jews that already agree with them. And but, but it also makes sense to them. What, what Jews on the left who are most often very disconnected from their own identity and their own history, first of all, it's easy if you're an anybody in any political camp. It, like for example, if, if I'm on the left and something is happening in Algeria, and I want to understand what's happening in Algeria, the, the first person I reach out to will be an Algerian who shares my politics, because that's how I'm trying to understand. That's just human nature. We all tend to do that. We look for the person who's very close to that situation, who shares my political worldview. So what non-Jews on the left tend to do is they reach out to Jews they know who share their politics, who share their worldview, and they ask, well, what is this? What's going on? How do you feel about it? How should I see it? How does it fit into the ideas that we both share, the principles we both share, the world outlook we both share? And I think what unfortunately often happens is the Jews who are on the left who are receiving these questions, they themselves are very disconnected from their own identities. I think one thing that, that the vision movement tries to address and solve is the fact that there are so many politically active young Jews out there who are connected to their identities but don't understand how like systemic injustice works or structural injustices work 
while there's also all these politically active Jews who will show up for every oppressed and marginalized group, but have no roots of their own, have no deep Jewish identity or, or, no, or no connection to like the identity that like all of our great grandparents shared. Mm-hmm. And what we try to do with the vision movement is really create a critical mass of young leaders who are simultaneously both, who are deeply connected to their Jewish identity and who are able, as the children of Israel, to show up for other oppressed groups and fight injustice. But as the children of Israel, with a very deep commitment to our identity, to our history, to our destiny, to our land, to our Torah, and showing up as that identity for the oppressed of the world. Right. I do think, though, that that is indicative of a major flaw and um, issues with the framework, this like anti-colonial decolonization discourse framework that has been developed that like the Jews have been so ostracized and essentially like excluded from any real participation in those discussions based on this like phenomenon of tokenizing Jews who already agree with them. Either they'll like take the leftist Jews who have no connection to their own identity or like Nitori Karta who like protests mm-hmm. Palestine, right? Like that is who they reach for, but they completely ignore the fact that like 90 plus percent of Jews don't fall into those categories. So like, and, and if you look at instances where, you know, other political groups will tokenize, you know, like Republicans will parade Candace Owens around and be like, oh, look, like black people agree with Republicans or, you know, you'll find an indigenous person in North America who like doesn't agree with decolonization. You can always tokenize that and be like, okay, yeah, look, like I found a guy who like supports my opinion. But if the like essence of this discourse is trying to really like dig under people's identity and like figure out what makes them tick, they have a massive failure when it comes mm-hmm. to the Jewish people. And I don't think we should let them get away with that. I mean, right. there's a there's a real issue with those like ideological tools to mm-hmm. disseminate identity if you can't manage to like deal with the identity of one of the oldest, longest surviving people in history. You know, no, no. Like, I, get I, it together. I, I think I think you're making a lot of great points. Our identity, the identity of an ancient civilization that was destroyed, yet shared an experience nearly everywhere in the world that we were displaced to, of telling our children over and over and over again, all year long, we have, we have all these different points on our calendar for thousands of years, where we would tell the next generation, we are going home. We were essentially Palestinian refugees for 2,000 years basically telling our kids we're going home we're going home we're going home and it's only in the last couple hundred years that so many jews really as a result of the traumatic oppression we experienced specifically in europe who kind of like sold out our identity and tried to like gain inclusion and whiteness in the societies we lived in but for that we were all self-identifying as refugees from the land of israel yearning to go back trying to go back many times and eventually succeeding through this movement called Zionism. Now, I I think that part of the problem is, you know, for the left to be able to accept a story like that would require them to stretch the boundaries, uh, at least for many of them, to stretch the boundaries of their worldview. The truth is, I, I think when it comes to the tension between historical materialism and historical idealism, the real Hebrew answer is they're both correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're both motivating forces. And yeah, I think that that is like indicative of a lot of dogma that exists in those circles. And while we can, you know, learn um, and educate ourselves on what their frameworks of analysis are, we should also not hesitate to call them out for their shortcomings, which are great, in my opinion. 
um, because there's plenty to be able to study about the Jewish people and to be able to learn about what our identity actually is, if there was even the remote existence of any curiosity on their part. And that just isn't there. I mean, a perfect... Well, it's all perceived as like Zionist propaganda from their perspective. Well, I mean, okay, take Albert Memmi, for instance, right? I mean, his text on the colonizer versus the colonized is like one of the most foundational texts of the entire discourse. And yet his, all of his opinions on Zionism, he was a Jew, he was a Tunisian Jew, he didn't identify with the colonizer or the colonized. He, he felt like he was in like a third group altogether, which just in and of itself says something about how Jews should be perceived and should be understood in, in this framework and should be taken and expanded upon. But everything he's written about Zionism has just been dismissed as, oh, like now he's colonized. Right, like there is, there is just some level of hypocrisy and a lack of intellectual honesty in dealing with the question of the Jew within these discourses. Do, do you think, just because you brought it up, I'm, I'm just curious if you would agree with me that the reason why Memi's conclusions on Jewish issues are so easily dismissed is because he himself is unconvincing when it comes to Jewish identity and Jewish decolonization. And I would argue this just based on the fact that he supported a two-state solution. Like just the fact that he would support dividing our land into two separate states and relinquishing the cradle of Jewish civilization and the places that are most important to our collective story, including the city where most of our ancestors are buried. Just the fact that he would so easily give up on that without even expressing an internal struggle over it kind of makes his claim, it would make any claim regarding Jewish indigeneity hard to swallow. In my I opinion. don't know. I feel like there are Palestinians who support a two-state solution and that doesn't doesn't undermine their um, like position as indigenous people, and like it doesn't discredit their uh, no because it, because they're starting from a different starting point. Meaning they're starting in the land, having been in the land before the conflict began. I don't think, with the exception of certain Zionists, I don't think anybody's really challenging the indigeneity of Palestinians. Um, you know, I think it's very clear that that this is a people that was in the land when the conflict began, as opposed to a population that moved to the land from another place uh, around the beginning I of the I still don't see why it would discredit the argument on one side, but not on the other. Meaning if we're both indigenous, even if we came back to the land and we recognize, okay, there's another indigenous people here, like, I'm willing to meet you halfway. I'm not saying that that's my right, perspective and- on it. But it is a it is a potential valid perspective. It doesn't it wouldn't discredit a Palestinian's claims to indigeneity. I don't know why then that's again well, applied. Like, I, I think for very obvious reasons. I think that the state of Israel and most of its supporters abroad have worked tirelessly to present Israel as part of the Western world and as on Team USA. And the more we try to promote Israel as like a Western country, or as Ehud Barak has been quoted as saying, a villa in the jungle, like an outpost of Western civilization in an otherwise savage region, as a Jewish Rhodesia, as long as we're presenting ourselves that way, while sometimes simultaneously calling ourselves indigenous, which is like, just comes across looking like a joke, it's hard for us to expect anybody to really recognize our actual connection to this land because we're not behaving. And on top of all of that, like I said about Albert Memmi, the willingness to give up parts of our land and specifically the, the most important parts of our land. Mm-hmm. I think that really undermines the claim to indigeneity when you're already starting from a situation where it's not obvious. With Palestinians, it's obvious because they're the inhabitants of the land prior to 
the event or series of events that birthed the conflict. Whereas Zionists are very clearly seen and very clearly were people coming back from elsewhere. Now, because we know our own story, we know that the Jewish people were only ever in Lithuania or in Poland or in Algeria because of a crime committed against us when we were displaced from the land we've been struggling to come back to for centuries. But to an outsider who doesn't know our story, all they see is a bunch of people coming from Europe using tools of... Not just Europe. The Zionist movement was largely led by European Jews. Yeah, by but I Jews also coming feel like that's Europe. a fault in the discourse, meaning like just they define Zionism by how they define... like. People right. outside the Jewish the movement. Community. The movement was led by Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah, but it was quickly taken in, in many different directions. Meaning, like a lot no, of people I... define themselves as Zionists while having very different opinions than the like typical labor Zionist. Yes, that's true. But for the most part, all of the different Zionist ideological tendencies were led by Ashkenazi Jews. There were Mizrahi Jews who recognized in Zionism something that they had believed in and wanted for many centuries, for many generations, and they latched on to different Zionist tendencies. But all of those Zionist tendencies were coming from Europe, essentially. And I think that Mizrahi Jews were included in Zionism, but sometimes, depending on, depending on which stream, I think you know, some tendencies really abused them and some just totally embraced them as, as equals, as Jews, as our brothers and sisters. You could see like a clear difference, for example, between like the labor Zionists and the revisionist Zionists. Mm -hmm. While the revisionist Zionists, you know, embraced Mizrahi Jews as our own, as equals, um, labor Zionists kind of treated them like, okay, they're like something in between like us and the Arabs. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, I, and I think that made it very easy for a lot of people in anti-Israel spaces today to understand the history as Zionism oppresses Arab Muslims, Arab Christians, and Arab Jews, but co-opts the Arab Jews into its colonialist project. Mm -hmm. that's, how, that's how it's being framed, but it was really Mapai's behavior and attitudes towards Mizrahi Jews that gave the ammunition for that claim. Mm -hmm. All right, I see that. So then in terms of the messages that is being promoted by the state of Israel and its supporters abroad, uh, you During you don't this think, war. Yeah, during this war. Mm -hmm. I mean, and in general, but we mm -hmm. can focus specifically on the war since that's the time we're in. Mm -hmm. um, you, you don't seem to think that they're doing too well. No, definitely not. I, I think almost all of Israel's messaging right now is really kind of going in the kivun, going in the direction of presenting us as like the civilized, uh, morally superior, according to Western standards, actor, whereas the Palestinians or Hamas are the savages. That's kind of the message. Hamas is ISIS. You know, what happened to us on Simchat Torah, October 7th, is 9-11. Like these comparisons, casting us in the role of the United States, and basically constantly, constantly, constantly trying to present us as the more civilized actor in a fight against barbarism. That is something, first of all, that every colonizer does. That's the way every colonizer speaks about the colonized. And if the core anti-Zionist accusation being made by our enemies and critics is that we are colonizers, that Zionism is a colonial project from Europe, and that Israel is a settler colonial state, speaking like colonizers, isn't helpful. And I think it's also not healthy for us because 
You know, Rav Kook teaches in the sixth essay of Orot Milchama that Israel possesses within ourselves all of the other national identities, that we're like a kaleidoscope of nations. Uh, in fact, Manitou, uh, when speaking about the bracha, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Amim Lano Et Torato, says there, it's not that Israel was chosen from all of the pre-existing national identities, but rather all of the different national identities were kind of like taken, combined, like put in a blender, and the result was Israel, that Israel possesses within ourselves. It's one of the reasons the Torah shows us 70 primordial national identities, and then 70 Israelites descending to Egypt, that there is a part of Israel that's corresponding to every other national identity. And one of the things that Rav Kook teaches in that essay is when other nations go to war, let's say, for example, Russia and Ukraine go to war, there's a part of Israel that's like Russia and a part of Israel that's like Ukraine, that as a result of Russia and Ukraine going to war and clarifying um, and crystallizing their own identities and their own purposes and what they would be willing to fight for and give their lives for, etc., there's a corresponding part of Israel that's like Ukraine and a corresponding part of Israel that's like Russia that becomes stronger. Now, when we tell ourselves and tell the world that we are civilized and the enemy are just like savages and we have an obligation to, to uh, neutralize the savage, what we're doing is this is also suppressing the part of our own identity that is like our neighbors. And there is an important part of our identity that is like our neighbors. You know, we usually speak in terms of the different tribal identities within Israel. So let's say Shimon, the tribe of Shimon, the tribal identity of Shimon that can be expressed through um, the Kahanistim or the hilltop youth. That is a part of our identity that our ruling class and our journalists and our uh, security agencies are always trying to suppress. There's also Levi, the tribe of Levi, which is maybe like a more intellectual expression of what people would call Jewish extremism, like Yeshivat Haramor, like some of the top pre-army prep schools in the country, like Eli, Hatzmona, etc. These institutions are often attacked in the press and by certain politicians. Like that part of our identity is often being suppressed. And I think that part of that comes from this desire, certainly by Israel's ruling class, and perhaps many diaspora Jews, to see Israel as part of the West and not the Semitic region. And I think if we ever want to feel like we belong here, if we ever want to have positive relation, real positive relationships, not based on like exploitation and, and maybe short-term mutual benefit, but real, lasting, deep, positive relations with our neighbors here, then we absolutely need to unpack and to a certain extent, embrace, perhaps within boundaries, but embrace the part of our identity that's actually closer to them than to the West. I definitely think, given the scope of what happened, I think it's really important that if we're saying that we need to be a little more like our neighbors, we have to clarify that we can never just enact senseless violence that like exists completely outside of boundaries. We have very, very clear halachot uh, that surround what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do and when we're allowed to do them. But yeah, I mean, listen, the fact of the matter is we exist in the Semitic region. And so, so I don't want to have this like perpetual cycle of violence where like we 
are giving our enemies this impression that we're just like easy pickings and like can come after us at every moment. Like I want to send the message to the entire region. Like not only do we belong here, but we're powerful and we're able to use our power in the same way you would use your power. And so like, you know, just understand and accept that fact of our existence. And that's the basis on which we could actually forge positive relationships or, you know, we just even relationships where they just accept our existence here and like make do with the fact that we're here. Either would be fine, but this like perpetual um, position of us being at the center of like all this attention um, and this like kind of perspective that like theoretically we could be easy pickings if they all, you know, banded together and like join forces against us because we're not really all that scary according to the way that they fight. That's a that's a major problem for us here, both on like a spiritual and ideological level, but also on a physical, practical security level. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'd agree that like this messaging that we're trying to like tie ourselves to the West right now is really the wrong way for us to go. Right. And I just think that for the sake of Israel's continued healthy national development, we need to be willing to explore and unearth and try to better understand the parts of our own identity that we've been afraid of up till now. Or that we perceive as being ugly or uncivilized or all those kind of things. Because I think at this point in time, it's clear that we don't exist in the kind of region that like operates by those boundaries. And we aren't a civilization that operated by those boundaries until we were forced to live in societies that were not our own. And so we have to have a reckoning to ask ourselves, you know, is this really serving us? And is this really who we are? And is it accomplishing the goals that we want to accomplish here? Um, So I think the last point that I want to talk about is, you know, Vision has been running a Take Back Gaza campaign on social media since the war started. I'm a big fan. Um, But Samuel Hyde recently referred to this campaign as the position of messianic lunatics. So how would you uh, respond to this claim? I think I would respond the same way the Vision Instagram account responded when he dropped that article in the Jerusalem Post, uh, just basically pointing out that we're in this mess because of the policies that he advocates, right? Yeah. There is no other way to restore security to this country's south than to take back Gaza. Israel must have Gaza if we don't want to repeat this war every two, three years. In general, I think it's very easy to dismiss people as messianic lunatics, but at the end of the day, the policies we advocate for would bring Israel forward, make Israel more secure, and create better relations with our neighbors, whereas the type of policies he advocates for are those that seem to be constantly putting us in danger. Right. I don't see how advocating for us to give up more of our land, meaning not only do they not want us to take back Gaza, but they actually want us to now withdraw from the West Bank. And it's somehow the occupation of the West Bank's fault that we're in this whole situation like that. Well, I I don't know if that's his position. I don't know if that's Samuel Hyde's position. But, yeah, there are a lot of people in his camp maybe who take that position. I think his position is the army should stay in the West Bank, but the Jews should be thrown out, which I think would ultimately make nobody happy. That, That makes nobody happy. Yeah. That just angers everyone. Yeah. Like, how does that help anyone? I mean, yeah, it's just this idea that, like, somehow using the, like, earth that we're deeply connected to as some sort of, like, bargaining chip Mm -hmm. to, like, have a better relationship with Palestinians and that's going to solve all our problems is just, it has been delusional from the second that it was proposed. But I think actually watching that process try to play out in real life and seeing the results of it 
like for me that's lunacy to continue to support a policy like it's literally the definition of insanity is to like keep trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results like if that does not perfectly describe people who are still like for us not actually applying jewish sovereignty to like all parts of our land i don't i don't really know what it is like i don't know how there's any legs to stand on for that position especially i mean before simcha even but especially now given the given what happened, given how painful that was. Look, there there are people, and I think it's more common among, like, maybe diaspora Jews and Olim, who are perhaps still a little bit outside of Israeli society to a certain extent, um, to keep advocating for policies that they're either invested in because of their politics, their associations, their career ambitions, whatever it may be, they're trying to figure out a way to keep this policy relevant, despite the fact that it's a proven failure time and time again. Uh, of course, they would probably throw the challenge back to us. Well, what are you going to do with millions of Palestinians who are in these territories? And that's something we've addressed in previous podcasts and we can continue to address in future podcasts. I don't know. I feel like, honestly, even if you are in a position where like you feel like you're pressured to like support a specific policy, at this point in time, it's better to not support any policy and just say, like, I don't really have an answer than to keep pushing for uh, for us to like abandon parts of our land when clearly, clearly that puts us in actual danger and we can't just control that. Like, I mean, look at the type of surveillance that we'd had Gaza under and yet this type of thing was still able to happen. Like there's just not a situation in which that's like a viable, safe thing for the Jews to, to, to do. To do. Uh, right, look. Even though I happen to see the status quo as extremely volatile and unstable and dangerous, I tend to agree with you that as bad as the status quo is, it's still preferable to Israel surrendering land and certainly preferable to Israel destroying you know, entire Jewish communities. I mean, I, I don't advocate to keep the status quo. I think we have lots of changes we need to make in this country. I think a lot of people are pushing for changes to be made in this country. Um, I want to see like us actually properly govern all parts of our land and not try to abandon it um, and pretend like we take no responsibility over the inhabitants that live there. That's obviously going to be like a long, difficult road, but it's going to be one that actually serves us and our our interests in the long term and not the interests of all of these so-called supporters of Israel which is really like why this whole uh, solution was even devised in the first place. Like all of these attempts to like partition. the land. Yeah, all these attempts to like partition this, this little piece of land here has not been actually designed to like fully fulfill the aspirations of either us or the Palestinians. It's, it's unjust for both of us. And really like, I think the ability for Jews to support that, I really question how like you can be a self-respecting Jew, really feel the pain over what we just went through, see the kind of situation that Israel's in and still be like, yeah, that's a good idea. It's hard for me to relate to that position. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right. Uh, one thing I think our listeners should know is uh, we're launching our Patreon page at patreon.com slash vision movement. And uh, this is really an opportunity for us to give back to a lot of our supporters, people who keep the show alive and running. You know, this show is completely listener funded. We don't want that to change. And after a couple of years of much appreciated support from our listeners, we've decided to give back mostly in the form of patron exclusive content. 
And if anybody's interested in checking out the different tiers, um, different ways they could continue to support the show or begin to support the show, you can go check out our page at patreon.com slash vision movement. I'm announcing it because I'm excited about it. I want listeners to know. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be able to give back to people who do so much to help us do the work we're doing. Yeah. So this is Yuda Cohen with... Lizzie Ovial. <laughs> right? Lizzie is very much sitting in the driver's seat of the Next Stage podcast these days. So listeners, stay tuned for more of her. And as I said, you can check out our new Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash vision movement. And if you're interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 108.